I'm glad you're here tonight. Welcome to Calvary Community Church. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to welcome you. Do we have any new visitors this evening? Would you raise your hand? Hello and welcome over here. Let's welcome our visitors tonight. Thank you for being here. I'd like you to take your Bibles and meet me over in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Hopefully, uh, you have a candle and you also have a little uh, wax protectant ring as well. We'll be doing that in just a few moments. I had a a wedding here on uh, Saturday and I woke up on Saturday feeling not that great. But knowing that it was (laughs) their special day, I said, I got... I have got to be there. I cannot say, hey guys, sorry, figure it out. Boy, that would be quite a wedding gift. Could you call it a gift? <laughs> but um, I got here and it was just beautiful. I love weddings and the way they did the wedding was just wonderful. Um, and I got, you know, I got my second wind. I was feeling great. And I carried that into the rest of the day. And, and then I woke up on Sunday completely drained, uh, just really sick. So uh, my wife and I, along with our daughter, we weren't able to be here for Stephanie's graduation, but didn't she do a fantastic job? Just want to recognize her. She's right there with her husband, Joe. You know, I had Trent communicate for me what I couldn't communicate, but I really feel like Stephanie's story is what the local church should do. And I think it's great to see that she came in for one goal, and then she was led to Christ. And then as a result of that, she got involved in the school here. She was in school for four and a half years, not five, four and a half. And now she has, she knows why she's where she is today. And she's expounded upon her knowledge and she has um, used what she has to bring praise, honor, and glory to the Lord. And we, as a community church, get to go, amen. And we get to come alongside her and say, what a great thing we see uh, working through Stephanie. So I just want to say again, congratulations, and we're very proud of you, Stephanie, and it's it's an honor to have you with us. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, if you'd meet me there for just a moment. I want to look at this promise here. We're in the garden. Mankind has just fallen. This is a major turning point in human history up to this point. Man was in innocence. Uh, It did not mean that he was perfect in the sense that Jesus Christ was perfect. It's important to recognize Jesus, born of a virgin. That is very significant. Why? Because Romans chapter 5 talks about Genesis chapter 3 in that every single person who's born into this world is born with a sinful nature. And as a result of this, there must be a payment made for our sin. Adam and Eve were created in this innocence, but they still had the ability to fall to temptation. That could never be said of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand how significant that is. If Jesus was born with a sinful nature, then what he did on the cross was to pay for his sins only. It's why we believe that he is the son of God. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And praise God, he's coming back. He's coming back real soon. Just turn on any news station that you'd like, and you can see what I've just said to be proven as true. The Bible prophetically talks about his return. But Adam and Eve in the garden, they are now under sin. The devil distracted them and tempted them and said, you're not going to surely die. God just doesn't want you to know the difference between good and evil. And you can, 
you can know things now that you couldn't know before. And isn't that what we all want? Think of that in our own pursuit today. We have all sorts of smart devices and smartphones and things that are trying to tell us things that we don't know. And if we're not careful, we start listening to information that's not true. And that is exactly what the devil did. He deceived Eve and he deceived her to the point where she did what she was not supposed to do and she ate of that fruit. Well, as a result, Adam fell as well. And we're zooming in right to that moment where now man has not yet died physically, but he has been spiritually separated from God. And this is a statement that is said by the Lord in the garden. Take a look in verse 15 of Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's talking to the devil here, and there is a promise that is made by God that he will send a seed of the woman to destroy the serpent's head. This would not happen for many, many years after this prophecy. But the entire point of the Bible, the entire context, is this prophecy to be fulfilled. And the significance of it is that death was brought in by the devil. And death will be destroyed by God himself. Amen? We needed Jesus Christ. He is not nearly an option for us. When we can choose to do it ourselves or choose a little bit of him and his help and the rest us. No, no. We need all of him. Amen? And this is where that promise is made. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit into chapter 15 and verse 6. If you'll join me in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. A promise has been made to Abram. There was a promise already made in Genesis chapter 12, and that's when Abram was called out of his land, and he was supposed to follow the Lord into a strange land. There's a word there called sojourned, which means he would wander for a long time. This was very um, representative of early, early people, nomads. They would have tents and pack up from place to place as convenient for them, and that was Abram for a long time, and he went out on God's promise, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Now, Abram came from wealth, He came from opportunity, but he came from a pagan, wicked, idolatrous country. And God called him out to set aside a plan to bring forth that promise, that seed of the woman back there in Genesis chapter 3. He had already made a promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, but in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he says this, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them, And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And you may may think, why is this significant? Why is God repeating this part of the promise? Well, because in verse 3 and in verse 4, Abram is saying to God, God, I don't have any children. All I have is those of my house in the form of hired servants. How am I going to have a great nation? How am I going to have seeds that cannot be numbered like the numeral in the sea. How am I going to be able to do that if I do not have a seed? I don't have my own child. And if you know much about the Bible, you can see... Oh, hang on just a second here. The devil's doing his work, folks. I'll tell you that right now. I don't know why that's not working. Going to hit the refresh button. We don't really need these now, so I'll I'll just turn these off. Ha, how about that? Perfect. Power. (laughs) 
But if you know much about the culture that Abram came from, and, and even going into Jesus' time, for a woman to be unbarren, or excuse me, uh, for a woman to be barren and not have children, it was considered to be a curse from God. Um, boy, I wonder if our culture would get excited about having kids, amen? But sadly, our culture has reversed that. Um, getting back to the point here. When Abram said that, he was asking God, I don't have any children. My wife and I are getting old. How am I going to be able to believe you further for this promise when you have not even set me up for success? Now, I'm saying some things there, but that's what Abram is thinking. He's going to the point, and we know what he did. He went to Hagar and tried to bring about God's promise through Hagar and not through Sarah. But God says in verse 5, look at it again, look now toward heaven and tell the stars. Tell the stars. What does that mean? Count them. That's, that's an impossible task. Try that today. You, it's hard to do it today because there's so much light pollution. But fly out to a place without light pollution and just try to number the stars. And if you get tired, just remember your spot and try again the next night. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> but what God is saying here, believe on me, Abram, and I will bring it to pass. And that is exactly what he did in verse 6. I want you to look at this in verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. Now we're going to really fast forward past Jesus, past the cross, past his resurrection, and into the time of Paul. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 3. Paul now, thousands of years after what we just read was discussed, he's now writing to a region in Galatia. It's about nine different regions that he was writing to. Paul had been there on a missionary journey. He led them all to Christ, praise the Lord. And now there were people that came in after Paul because Paul would come. He would plant the seed. People would trust Christ. He would give him basic doctrine. Then he'd go on and do the process again. That's what God had planned for him. That's what the purpose for Paul was. But there are people that came in afterwards, and they tried to mess people up. They tried to get them to look past the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and look specifically to the Jewish law and say, Oh, men, if you're really saved, you'll have faith in Jesus Christ, and you'll get circumcised. And so a lot of men now are going, well, I really don't want to miss out on heaven, and I guess what Paul said was good and what these people are saying are good, and so I'm going to go do those things, and then they would start teaching that doctrine. That's where the danger really happens. And Paul's writing a letter, and it's called Galatians. He's writing it to these people to clear them up on some things, and he makes a statement in chapter 3 and verse 6. Take a look at chapter 3 and verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, your ears should go up, your eyes should be caught here, and you say, hmm, that looks pretty interesting. Well, that's in Genesis 15, 6. By the way, a great way to remember this cross-references, it's both verse 6. And both of the books start with a G. One, Genesis is older, so it's the higher number, 15. And Galatians is later, and it's a lower number, so it's 3. Don't ask me to tell you how that works in my brain. It just came there naturally. I give credit to God, amen? <coughs> but I don't know how easy that is for you. But he said a statement of what was said in Genesis 15, 6. Paul's reminding him. He said, Abraham what? Folks, he believed. And that belief in God, 
was enough to credit him with righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith. Now that's a very interesting statement, of faith. What does that mean? You can almost say of the faith. It's a specific faith, the one that rests in Jesus Christ. So raise your hand tonight if you have put your trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Raise your hand. This includes you. Look at some things here. Know ye therefore that they which are of the faith, excuse me, of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Now hang on a second. We could get the 23 and me, crack it out, go around and get everybody's tree, and we find some people are from this place, some people are from this place. It'd be hard to trace us all back to Abraham. And is that even possible? Because I don't know how many Jewish people are here tonight, but that's a major qualification. This is not talking about the physical seed. This is the spiritual seed. And there's a very important statement I want you to see here in verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing. It's a very interesting attribute of our God. He can see into the future and knows what's going to happen. Foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. Raise your hand if you are not a Jew. Okay, so culturally in Jewish culture, you're a heathen. We're Gentiles, baby. I took the test and I was .07 Ashkenazi Jew. Now, if it's enough for Elizabeth Warren to be like 3% Native American, then I could say you have a Jewish pastor. <laughs> Let me just continue here. Look what it says. Preached before the gospel. What's the good news here? The Messiah is going to come through you. Through your loins, through your seed, this is going to happen. Saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they, so this is the conclusion. When you read that, so then, this, we're coming to a conclusion here. So then they, you and me, which be of faith, are blessed with faithful Abraham. When that promise was made to Abraham, all of those who would believe in the future, we weren't even born yet. All of those who would choose of their own volition to believe, you would be a part of that promise. Amen. It's pretty interesting how we see from Genesis to Galatians here, this thread that goes through. What's the significance of it? We already know who the Messiah is. We know who the Savior is. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 say this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Hang tight, keep going. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ, the agent of creation, is God. That is the very first thing that John, the Apostle John, wants us to know through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing to us. He wants you to know equal. There is a clear trinity and the Son has a distinct role. He is called the Word. And it's a capital W because it is a title for him. When you look in your Bible tonight, when you look in your Bible tomorrow, you are reading Jesus Christ. You are reading the significance of God's fulfilling of a prophecy 
that he would send a redeemer for mankind and that it would be his son. There's a statement that's made here in verse 9. Take a look. That was the true capital L light. Again, referring to Jesus, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made by him very significant. Our culture today combats that with the theory of evolution. And I want to say it really clearly, because maybe you heard me say evolution. But I want to say it again. The theory, the theory of evolution tries to take away this power from God. Do you know how crazy it is, how much faith is required to believe in evolution? I literally heard a leading scientist say, it's not hard to believe that something can come from nothing. Folks, I've had a bank account with a zero balance. No wishing or desiring that I could say, hey, PNC, I know there's nothing in there, but there's something. And it's a lot. Yes. No, let's go 14 million, brother. We got, we got faith that a lot of something can come from that nothing. The Bible says that God created, specifically here, more clarified in John, Jesus, the agent of creation, came into his creation to the creature in the form of the creature, in the form of man, and he was rejected. Look in verse 14. And the word was made flesh, And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Now, this is significant. It It would be interesting if that word grace is not there. That's not just a synonym. It's not just a filler because the Apostle John had to get a word count for his gospel to be accepted. That's a very specific word, grace. This is getting what we do not deserve. If we were to take a moment and stop tonight and realize how much grace has been given to us today, we would be in proper awe and reverence to God. Now think about how much grace has been given in that Jesus died for all of your sins before you were even born. Before you even had the chance to commit a sin, he paid for them all. That's how much grace was shown to us. Not only is there grace, but there's also the significant statement, there's what? Truth. Don't we crave for the truth today? It's so hard to find the truth. I've I've done it. It seems like this time of the year, every year, I'm always looking. Google will tell you. They say, yep, Jesse starts searching for this key phrase, unbiased news. I've still yet to find it. I've done the things where you drop a little bit of money in the bucket and in the beginning, get a little trial and see it. And then the next thing I know, hey, they're gonna ask, they ask me, well, how do you vote? I don't, want you to, I don't want you to know how I vote. I just want you to tell me things that happen without spin on it. You can't find it today. It's hard to find things that are based in the truth. Isn't it good to know that God offers us the truth? Not his version of the truth, truth itself. And it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, born of a virgin, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. What does that mean? John said, I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That's significant. His title as the Son of God, full of grace and truth. John bare witness, verse 15, of him and cried. Now that's John the Baptist bearing witness of him 
And when he saw him, he says, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. Now, here's another character that we've just introduced here, Moses. What's the significance of this? Moses came before or after Abram? He came after, well after. And with him, God gave the law to the Jews because they wanted themselves a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. So God gave him instruction, and that instruction is how a person can earn eternal life. And here's the problem, folks. It's not just the big 10 that you have to worry about. It's the 613 that also are there to point us to a Savior. Because we cannot do it ourselves. We can't even do the first 10. It's not possible. Why? Because we're sinners. The law is is, is supposed to point us to a Savior. And there's a significant statement here. The law was given by Moses. The law shows us, hey, you fail. The standard is perfection. You don't have it. And here's the rest of this verse. But grace and truth, there's that statement again, unmerited favor and truth is what came by Jesus Christ, which is not his last name, that is his title. He is the anointed one. Look in chapter 3 in verses 14 through 16. (coughs) And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so... Must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. This is how simple it is to receive everlasting life. I have not been doing this work long. What do I mean by this work? Studying the Bible, teaching the Bible. I started seriously pursuing the word back in 2013. And in this time, this this 10 years time, I'm still amazed by how complicated people make the gospel. How complicated people make salvation. It's always something that they have to do. The word repent has been twisted so poorly. Turning, starting, giving, stopping, whatever it may be. People always look to themselves as their own redeemer. And it's like they ordered Jesus as a side. They say, yes, I'll have a little bit of that, please. But I know if I, boy, if I do this and this and this, I'm not really saved. The Bible says very clearly in verse 15 here, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then there's the verse of the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. So the point of the promise made in Genesis 3 was to redeem man from that curse that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. We needed a savior. We needed someone that could shed their blood and actually do something of value for us. And it could be no human. We could not. If, if, if the whole world got on the same page and said, we're going to raise up godly children and we're going to wait for generation after generation until you have the perfect child and he grows up and then he will die for our sins. Even that child could not pay for the sins of the world. That's why we needed God to intervene. And he did so through his son. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 
21. I was just talking to someone today, and those of you who are familiar with my teaching, you'll know what I mean by this. I just got an email today that someone said, I was in Calvinism for 20 years, and I am wrestling with what it means to believe. And I used to be, and I'll be, I'll be transparent with you, I used to be frustrated by that, because I would think, how could it be so hard to believe? But now, I, I, it, it hurts me. It really does. It, it makes me emotional. I, I well up with emotion when I read that email, because I think how effective the devil is in his work right now. And I'm glad they're coming to us. I'm glad that people are looking and they're finding our ministry and they're very slowly, the knot is very tight, but very slowly we're working on untying that thing. There are people who would say all the right things, yet they're not convinced that they've done enough believing. And it's just a hard thing for people to see that. I count myself incredibly blessed that I was raised in a family that gave me the clear gospel. And those of you who came from false doctrine, from a religion that did not teach salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, and you now know the truth, you know how precious it is. And if you have children, the best thing you can do for those kids is bring them to a church that teaches the truth. Amen. I'm telling you, that, that's the greatest thing you can do because if you, no matter what happens, how, how bad this world may get, if your kids from a young age can understand, I have sin, my sin separates me from God, Jesus came and died for my sin as God, I believe on him. If your kids can know that, no matter what this world does, they'll be absent from this body but present with the Lord. When my wife and I were going to adopt kids, <clears throat> that's the very first thing that we said we would do. Regardless of what the situation was, and those of you who may know the stories of adoption and things, they're... The, the families that place children, it's very hard. They're coming from bad, you know, bad places. It's just difficult. Not to say they're bad people, but there's a lot of things that are just difficult. And some people would go, well, you know, we're not going to adopt a kid like that because, you know, you want a perfect kid. By the way, let me know when you find one of those. <laughs> um, I don't think they exist. Love you, kids. You did great. But there are no perfect children. But one of the things we told the Lord, we said, if it's your will for, to have, for us to have children, we will raise those kids in the truth of the gospel. I'm, I'm not sitting there now, you know, Remy's back there with Kyla right now. I'm not saying, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to share the gospel with her yet. If that's the only thing I get to do, I will do that. Because I know how serious it is to not have the gospel. And believe has been just made so difficult. But look what is said here in verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Now this is for the believer. He's given us an example that you should follow in his steps, not to earn eternal life, but know that if the world persecuted him, and they did, they'll persecute us too. <coughs> I want you to look at 22. Who did no sin. You should underline that. He did no sin. There wasn't a moment where Jesus was really, really weak and he, and he snapped out of anger or anything like that. He had no sin in him. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When was he reviled? When he was buffeted on the cross. He was mocked. You know, it's interesting when you study those two thieves. Both of them mocked him. Both of them said, if you are who you say you are, take us out of this. 
But one man came to biblical repentance. He looked at his condition, and he decided, I'm going to change my mind from mocking this man to putting my trust in this man. And you know what Jesus said while he was on the cross in innocence, in perfection? He looked at that thief who changed his mind and said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That thief didn't have a chance to go join the Baptist church. He didn't have a chance to give tithes and offerings. He didn't have a chance to show that he really believed by a changed life. You know why? Because none of those things matter. He put his trust in Jesus Christ. And guess what? You know how, you know how significant it is when Jesus said today? The amount of time between the Lord giving up his life there and that thief's life ending. He was with the Lord that same moment. I wonder if they high-fived. I'm just curious. What joy and peace that was in that moment. But the simplicity of that man's conversion is the simplicity of all of our conversion. Just simply believe. Verse 23, he was reviled. He reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep, going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. There's, there's some double, um, not double speak here, but double interpretation that we can see. Clearly, Jesus paid for all the sin of the world in his own body. He took that on and paid for it. But then for those of us who have already believed, he is our example. We walk after him. Not to really prove that we believe, but to be close to him, to have that closeness in the intimate fellowship with the Lord. We know that he's been lifted up and sacrificed. We know that now he is the promise that was given in Genesis chapter 3. And through this seed, you and I are born by faith. But we also know that he's coming back. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a reason why, folks, you don't see a lot of churches named the First Corinthian Church. Okay? And there's a reason for that, and that's because the church in Corinth there, they had some problems. They were mixing idolatry with communion. They were using the legal system to um, get their own way over fellow believers. There were problems with just all sorts of really perverse things that were happening in that church. Praise God, it's not how you live that gets you to heaven, amen? But uh, if you want to be used by God, how you live is very important. But the significance here is that Paul is writing to them. He's saying, look, I want you to know some things about Jesus and about his return. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now this is a significant statement. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I will tell you this. You're not going to get into heaven with this body that you have right here. (laughs) See, some of y'all are awake and paying attention. (laughs) Because you know what? This body, not only is it in need of repair, (laughs) but it's sinful and it's affected by sin. We're going to get a new body. And that is based, that truth is based off the fact that Jesus came back from the dead and he had a new resurrection body, so 
will we also, those who have believed, verse 51, behold, which means look, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. This does not mean slumber like you, you take a rest. This word sleep means death. There are a group of people who will not see death because they'll be changed when the Lord comes back. He will not physically come back in this return. This is at the rapture. He will call those who have believed out and they'll be transformed and they'll have their new body and they won't see physical death. That's an amazing group. And folks, I'd say maybe 15 years ago, if you were to say that in you know, normal culture, you may be considered crazy that people would disappear. But don't, take, just don't let this blow by you, all this stuff about aliens and all sorts of stuff. There's a narrative being set up by the devil. I think now people are, 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 are starting to think, well, maybe people could disappear. Maybe that could happen. And we know that the, there's going to be strong delusion and people are going to believe a lie. But there's coming a time where people are going to be alive and then they'll be transformed. Look in this verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Those who have died in Christ, they are raised, and it says this here, incorruptible. What does that mean? They were saved in corruption, meaning they were saved in this body that it doesn't get better, it gets worse. And when you die, you go into the ground and you're not preserved in that state. You decay and you're back to the, to the, to the form in which God made you. However, those who have put their faith in Christ, when the Lord comes back, that dead, useless body will be changed into something that is incorruptible. Now look, if somebody sold me an incorruptible car, you better believe I'm going to buy that. Now, it's not really incorruptible, but what if it was? What if it had no... Yeah, no, had not, don't have to worry about the oil change at all. Ask me about that. That's how I ruined my first car. My dad was like, did you put oil in it? I was like, I, last year, I think. Oh, the head gasket blew. Oh, who would have known? Well, that car, definitely corruptible. It was long gone, okay? This new body that we get will not be able to be touched by corruption. What is corruption? Sin. Won't be able to be touched by that. For this 53 corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord, who? Jesus Christ. And to think that he came, lived a perfect life, did no wrong to no one, and he was still rejected. But aren't you glad that he went to that cross for you. This hope that we have passes any kind of earthly guarantee. We could give away, you know, all sorts of things tonight that would help you temporarily. But those are, these material things are not going to solve our problems. I keep seeing this in our, in our young men today. There's young men who are, are, are struggling mentally. They're struggling and having difficulty, and they're not talking to people. And the people that they do talk to don't have the answers. And I've talked with very few people on the phone, these young men that actually call to a church and are looking for help. And when I get to tell them that their hope can be placed in something beyond a material program, beyond a successful career, beyond all the things that this world can offer, and I get to tell them that all those things that plague you at night, that keep you up because of the mistakes that you've made, they've all been paid for. That changes a man. 
he recognizes, I'm not my own savior. God loves me and gave his son for me. Leading young men to Christ like that becomes very easy. Because they see they need someone to take it all. They're already trying to work for it. And they can't do it. They need someone who paid all, um, all of their sin. And so when they put their trust in Jesus, something happens to that person. You know what? They get hope. Beyond, hey, I may fail in the future, and you will. But God is never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. You have Jesus Christ. In Matthew 7, 23, when it says, when Jesus says, I never knew you, a lot of people focus on, you need to know God, you need to know God. That says that Jesus didn't know you. I can run around and act like I know the President of the United States. Maybe that's not a good example, because he could forget <laughs> that he knows me. <laughs> I could pretend like I know the governor of Florida, I think he's got a little bit more going on as far as you know, remembering things. But I could say, oh, I know him, I know Ron, we're good friends, blah, blah, blah. And then Ron sees me, he's like, I don't know who you are. I'm living in a fake reality. The significance of Matthew 7.23 is that Jesus does not know those people who claim to know him. You want to be known by Jesus, you put your trust in him. That's how you experience salvation. And that's what we're focusing on this time of year. There's a lot of things that we can distract ourselves with. Would you close your Bibles for a moment? There's a lot of things that we can distract ourselves with. I see it all the time, and it's easy. <coughs> it's easy to get distracted. You know, you're looking at something to buy for somebody, and you genuinely care, and you're just going through life, doing things as you would normally do it. But what I, what, what, what I think we really need to focus on is the opportunity to reach people where they are, because, folks, people are ready. They're ready for a change. You've worked with them all year long. They're ready for a change. You may think, well, I don't want to offend them by talking about religion. You'd be surprised how many people want to talk. You'd be surprised how many people want to have a conversation about the things that keep them up at night. But you and I need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to have that conversation. We need to be willing. I was just talking with a friend the other day. We can tell God to help us out, but if we're not willing to do what God says we need to do, we're not really ready to receive his help. It's like I tell, you know, you, you, you tell somebody, hey, go do this for me. And they say, oh, I really love you, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. What else can I do for you? Well, I really need you to do that. Uh, I don't feel like doing that. There's going to be a problem there. Those things aren't going to work out. But if you're ready and you're willing and you're able to share the gospel with people, what a wonderful gift you could give them. And that does not have to stop on December 26th. We don't have to wait until all of the shopping stores start playing Christmas music for us to say, now I'm going to share the gospel. This is an everyday thing. This is the way we should live our lives with the radar. How can I win somebody? How can I introduce somebody to Jesus Christ? And you may be here tonight and you may say, Pastor, I don't know where I'm going when I die. I hear what you're saying, but... I don't know if I can get to heaven by my own good deeds. Let me, let me just say what most of us already know. You can't get there on your own. That's why Jesus had to die. 
this hand to represent you and me, this block of sin is exactly what it says. It's sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It's perfection. You don't just miss it by a little bit. You never qualified, folks, because you have sin. You're born into it. Now, God, he loves you, but he hates sin because it separates us from him. Like I said, perfection is required. And you could say tonight, you could get down on your knees, you could cry out to God, and with the greatest of intentions say, I promise I will never sin. But even if you could keep that promise, the sin that you brought in today still needs to be paid. We all have sin. That's why we're called sinners. There's no amount of good deeds that we could ever do to pay for sin because the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. I think we need to understand the consequences of dying without a payment applied for this sin. People are going to church this week with the intentions of, I'm going to get right. Christmas, or excuse me, New Year's Eve is on Sunday this year. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be looking to make emotional decisions so they can earn eternal life. There's no amount of emotional decision that you can make to earn eternal life. This must be paid for by the shedding of blood. If you were to shed your own blood for it, you'd spend an eternity separated from God. That's why God, in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do for you and me what we could never do. He went to the cross, became that sin for us, he died and he was buried and rose again three days later. That action of his burial and his resurrection is not what paid for sin, although it's a part of the gospel message. What paid for sin is his shedding of blood. What did he say on the cross before he died? It is finished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, look at this, believeth in him, it is finished. Should not perish but have everlasting life. That is salvation. And people would say, well, if Jesus died for all the sin of all the world, and God has already accepted that, then why do people end up going to hell? Because it's not the fact that he died for all sin. That is what saves us. But you need to put your trust in him. The payment is ready to be applied. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And some people think the Christian life goes like this. All right, I'm doing good, I'm doing good. Oh, I fell off. I got to get back to God. He's holding on to us. This will never be something that God looks at and says to you, you're condemned of this. You're passed from death unto life. You'll never be brought into condemnation. Jesus Christ himself said that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Nobody looking around. If you're here tonight and that makes sense to you, say, Pastor, I came in tonight, maybe a friend, maybe you came in on the invitation of a friend. You say, I, I had no idea where I was going to go. I thought about it, <coughs> but I just don't know. But I understand now that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And it's not about me being a good person. It's about who I'm trusting in to get to heaven. And I put my trust in Jesus. I'm saved. If that's you tonight, if that describes you, and tonight you put your trust in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people here tonight that are praying for you. And we would like to pray for you. There's no one that's going to look around or tap you on the shoulder, but we would just like to know if that made sense tonight. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, I just trusted in Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? Anyone at all before we close this evening? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed for your privacy.
We're all here tonight because we understand the real reason for the season. It's such a cliche. But folks, I want you to understand the great opportunity that we have and the fact that we don't have a lot of time left. Be ready, willing, and able to share this light of the world with anybody and everybody that you come in contact with. Don't let that fear grip and choke you out. Trust the Lord and go forward in confidence. Share that good news. Father, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for your word. As we do this demonstration, Lord, I pray that it'll help us to visualize and realize this opportunity we have to share the light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. All right, here's what we're going to do next, okay? I'd like everybody to stand up and spread out along the walls of the sanctuary. We're going to try and make a loop, a circle around and in front of the stage here. You're going to want to be shoulder to shoulder. Trent, can you check that AC and see if that's on? While you're doing that, there should be some little uh, fake candles for the kiddos. Moms, dads, you've got those. Beautiful. Make sure those are turned off. Robert, I'm going to get the uh, blue mic. Or actually, I'm just going to stand up here. Um, yeah, in a moment. I'm going to use one of them. Can you grab one of them for me? Okay. All right. I'll give you some time here. Just spread out as much as you can. Um, James, can you hit that light right there, that back one? I'm just trying to think of any more that might be on. It's kind of good the laptop took a crash because now the projector will stay off. All right, um, in a moment, we'll turn those lights off. Make sure that you have a little wax ring over your candle, okay? Or uh, uh, on the, the middle of your candle there so you don't get burned. You hear this all the time. Share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. You know, sadly, a lot of people, they critique this ministry for that. Oh, it's too much about the gospel, not about great, deeper things of God. Folks, you don't get the great, deeper things of God without the gospel. But we have a responsibility to share this good news. Now, I'm going to have all the lights turned off. Go ahead and do that. And these here, the one on me. Whoosh. There we go. So this light will represent the gospel message that first came when it was promised. And then as the gospel rolled out, we went from Jew to Gentile, as Romans 1.16 said, and people started to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they started sharing the gospel with other people. So I'm going to go over here to James, and I'm going to light his candle. That flame represents the gospel. The passing of it represents sharing it with other people. I'm going to give this to Cheyenne here. And slowly but surely, the gospel message starts to spread. Now, we started in darkness. What you'll see in a few moments is the whole sanctuary will be lit up. The darkness right now represents the world. I, 
I just see it in our young people. People, have, they're just stumbling through. And those who don't really care, they're just defeated by the world. They're just sitting in darkness. But as this candle goes around the room, you start to be able to see and recognize faces. You can see where the pews are. You can see the walls and the decorations. You're able to see what you could not see before. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, let your light uh, so shine that men see your good works and glorify the Father, this is the significance of sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is a good work. You're not saved by a good work, but when you share it, you give the opportunity of light to somebody else, and it's up to them to believe. But if we were to stop spreading the light right now, this is as much light as we would get. Every person that came here tonight, you have a responsibility to be ready to receive the truth and then pass it on to the next person. Dana, could you play a silent night? Love that. It's your turn to pass the flame. Think of that as the opportunity you have tomorrow to share the gospel with somebody, a neighbor. Maybe you see them, you guys walk the dogs at the same time, you have a shared mailbox, whatever it might be. Would you prepare yourself to pass on the light of the gospel tomorrow? Look how much the room is already illuminated. You can even look across and point someone out that you know. Now, Tom Stokes saying that he sees me. For those of you that know, that's a miracle. Huh. This is the candlelight service to be at. You know, what's beautiful about this, too, is we may have some people with us here tonight that are here just visiting for a little bit of time, maybe even for today, and then they go back to where they're ministering, but it's the same gospel that they carry. And even if you're here tonight, you travel just for this, your responsibility is just the same as ours. And you can know, as we go our own ways into our communities and families, we all have a similar responsibility to share this gospel with others. What is that gospel message? That Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all the world. And all you must do to receive eternal life is believe on him. We're almost there. Pretty amazing that we've, the timing is just perfect. Now, my voice is kind of shot, so in a moment when we have everybody and their candle lit, we'll sing a verse of Silent Night. You got it? 
Erica and Kyla, the last ones there. Dana, whenever you're ready, lead us into uh, Silent Night. Now, you guys sing real loud. I know James isn't up here, but I think we can all sing. Silent Night, just one verse, verse one. Silent Now, there's one more thing I want to illustrate to you, and I'm going to ask that everyone be very quiet so we can see the significance of the next prophetic event. When the Lord comes back at the event called the rapture, all of the church will be removed. All the believers will be removed from the earth. What that means is for a brief period of time, there will be no saved people here on the earth. In a moment, when I ask you to blow out your candle... I want you to remain in silence and think about the significance of the coming time where there will be no one who has the truth. And remember our responsibility now, while we can see each other, while we have this truth, to take advantage of it and share it. Blow out your candle. Let us all be faithful with this light that we have. Heavenly Father, thank you for this responsibility. I ask that you bless the fellowship to follow. And thank you that we can be here tonight together. In Jesus' name I pray these things.